Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, today's podcast diverges a little bit from our typical corn soybean podcast interview, uh, and we delve into the world of almonds and almond production. Yeah, we spoke with Brett Sill, whose family has been farming for over 100 years in California in the Central Valley, and they grow all kinds of crops, but one of the big ones is almonds. And obviously that's very different than raising corn and soybeans. Yeah, Jason, I thought this interview was very fascinating just to hear the background of the family farm, the multi-generational aspect of it. You know, since the late 1800s, this family has been in the same area producing crop products and then to learn about almond production and some of the differences. But then once again, some of the similarities between row crop ag in the Midwest was fascinating. Yeah, and as you mentioned, Brett has a fascinating family history. He has a grandfather that was in San Francisco when the gold rush started as a blacksmith and an ancestor that was on the Lewis and Clark expedition. So I, I think this is a great conversation. Absolutely. So let's jump right into the conversation with Brett. Welcome to the podcast, Brett. To kick things off here today, could you tell us a little bit about your background and career history up till today? Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys having me on the show today. When I graduated Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, I went to work for a grower shipper over in Oxnard, California. And that was about the time that the bag salads have kind of, were starting to get really popular. And we started uh, bag greens out there in Oxnard and collard, mustard, turnip and kale, which was the big Southern item at the time. So not too long after that, I was uh, transferred over to Atlanta, Georgia, where I opened up a processing plant and was heading the sales and marketing uh, for our cut and clean greens uh, program. And, you know, from there, just I got a really good experience dealing with growers in South Georgia and, you know, putting together deals with growers and just seeing how they grew different in South Georgia. And then really from Florida all the way up to Wisconsin and Ohio, we, you know, put together programs out there uh, with different growers. And so it was really interesting to see the different growing of what they did in California and how they did it in the South and the Midwest and, and, and all that. And so it kind of gave me a really good perspective of how they grow in different regions across the country. And so uh, about 2012, uh, we finally decided my wife and I to move to California and, um, yeah, her being a, a Georgia peach and graduating from the university of Georgia, that was, a a pretty tough sale, but um, she uh, she did come back to or she did move back with us to California, and it wasn't until uh, I think 2015 when I came back to the family farm. I've been here since 2015. Uh, we're a family-owned operation. Uh, my dad's still the president, and I have two cousins that uh, uh, that work with us. So we're a good family operation. Um, we grow almonds. We grow walnuts, corn, wheat, and alfalfa for some of the dairies around here. And then we also do some garlic and carrots. Well, that's a very diverse operation. I think it's it's interesting when you talk about when you got into the industry, you were doing bagged greens. That's really changed things. I if, if I come home, my wife says to pick up some lettuce and I come home with a head of lettuce, she's not real that impressed with me. <laughs> she says, right. why, why do I want to do all that work? So yeah, that's been a big change over the past, I don't know, 15 years. Yeah, it sure has. And I, I do the same thing. I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm doing the shopping and I'm going to the produce department just because, you know, I did a lot of store checks early in my career in the produce business. And, and, um, yeah, when I when I, I always like to buy the the head lettuce or I buy 
you know, the romaine or red leaf and stuff like that. And it just always seems to be, uh, you know, take a good look at it and you feel it and touch it and know exactly what you're getting. But it sure is convenient having the, the bag salads nowadays. So yeah, we definitely sure. take advantage of that. So Brett, tell us a little bit more about your family farm. How long has it been in operation? And maybe talk a little bit about some of the changes that farm has seen over the duration of, of the farm. Yeah, so we I'm a fourth generation farmer. So we started, we actually annexed our first ground in in 1898. And before that, my great-grandfather was actually a scout for Lewis and Clark. And he settled in Santa Clara. And he was farming there. And then his youngest son of six was farming up in um, Northern California, then moved to Bakersfield in 1895. Like I said, we annexed in that ground in 1898. And that's some of the farm land that we still grow today. And so, uh, yeah, when my dad graduated from college, he came back to the farm and was like, he's all, man, he's all that 160 acres of almonds made more than the 2000 acres of cotton. And so, it's changed quite a bit since then. So now we grow over 2000 acres of, of almonds and we don't grow any cotton. So, um, but yeah, we're a pretty diverse, um, operation and yeah, it's changed. I mean, I always say it's like, I can't farm the same way my dad did. And, you know, hopefully if my son wants to get into the farm, he's not going to be able to farm the same way I did. And so, um, what I've really tried to do is just look at all the different technologies that's out there and you know tried to see hey what's going to work for our farm what's going to work for our guys out on the ranch what's going to make their life easier what's going to help us become more efficient and you know and then kind of decipher and see which one we're going to be able to use and 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 actually utilize instead of just being another tool in the toolbox that just sits there and we don't ever use so you know we are bombarded by technology almost every week that have this or have that and we have to decide you know is this something that we can implement into our farming operation brett i this is i can't i can't pass this up your great-grandfather did you say or one of your ancestors was on the lewis and yeah. clark expedition yeah wow he came up from uh, uh canada actually and he he had um i think built the fifth house in san francisco and had a blacksmith shop there and um, we have a picture in our office in, in Bakersfield that that shows, you know, the Sill Blacksmith shop in 1847 in, in San Francisco. So, yeah, we have a long history. And like I said, he started farming, you know, just south of San Francisco back in the day. And he had six kids and his youngest of six is the one that came down to Kern County. That's ama- amazing. He must have uh, got into San Francisco just at the right time there, just in time for the gold rush. He, I'm, I'm yeah. sure that that worked out well for him. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Incredible. Brett, you mentioned that you grow about 2000 acres of almonds. That seems like a lot of almonds. I know that's a lot more of an intensive crop to grow, a lot more inputs and things like that than we're used to corn and soybeans, you know, in this area. 2000 acres of corn and soybeans is a uh, you know, that's plenty of acres, but it's kind of a medium sized farm. Uh, but 2000 acres of almonds, that sounds like a lot more input and a lot more, uh, a lot more headaches maybe. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a lot to manage. Um, it, it seems like the almonds don't, uh, ever take a day off. Um, we used to seem like you come up from back from, uh, Thanksgiving and, you would have till Christmas, but now, I mean, shoot, two years ago, I think I was watering in December, just, um, 
you know, because of the situation, the environment that we had. And so it's like, the, it never takes off. It's, uh, you know, we get done harvesting sometime in mid October and then it's like back to the fertility program to get your, your fall applications on. And then you have sanitation where you got to shake the, the mummies off the trees that, that don't come off during harvest because they'll, you know, orange navel worms and different pests will overwinter in there. And so there's a big sanitation process that we have to go through. And then before you know it, come mid-January and the buds start swelling up and we've got uh, bloom in middle February. So it doesn't seem like uh, there's much of a downtime anymore here in uh, an almond operation. So I was going to ask you about the differences between producing almonds and, and annual crops, such as corn and soybeans or even produce. But maybe I had to ask you about the similarities. Are, are there similarities? Uh, you know, I think it is. I mean, we're growing, a, whether we're growing a, a corn plant or we're growing an almond tree, I mean, a lot of things in the soil that we're trying to do now um, is very similar uh, as far as the nutrition, you know, obviously is a little bit different in what a, a corn plant needs versus what an almond tree needs. Um, a lot more intensive and a lot more things that that almond tree needs. Um, but it is growing and, um, you know, a lot of the same practices that we're trying to incorporate in, you know, growing corn, the things that we can learn and what we can do and growing an almond or vice versa. Brett, I'm a little ignorant of almond production, but is there a certain climate that almonds prefer? Is there a, you know, a reason that you're kind of best suited there in your geography for almond production or what, what all goes into that from a production yeah. standpoint? Yeah, so almonds love a Mediterranean climate. And so we have that climate here in the central California and northern California in the valley. And, you know, so we grow here in California. We, in the San Joaquin Valley, we grow nearly 80% of the world's almonds. Oh. And so, um, so, yeah, it's a big production here. We start off in bloom in mid-February. And then usually harvest will start sometime in August. We start usually around that first week of August and we go through mid-October. And then after that, you know, we take it to a holer. The holer will then, you know, take the hole and the shell off unless we go in shell and we sell that, you know, to China and India. They take a lot of the in shell. So the holer will take the, the hole and the shell off and then they'll send it to a handler. And then the handler is the one that kind of sorts it, size it, packs it in, you know, 50 pound box or a bin or whatever the customer is wanting. And then, you know, the handler we'll sell it from there. You mentioned that the Central Valley produces 80% of the world's almonds. Was it always that way? And has the market, you know, was the market kind of developed as production started to ramp up in the Central Valley or did that production move from somewhere else? You know, the Almond Board has done a really great job of, of taking the volume that we are doing here in California. And so, you know, I think when I first got into the almond industry in 2015, I think we we're probably right around 2 billion pounds. And, um, you know, here today, we're at a 3 billion pound crop. So that's a, mm -hmm. that's a huge, huge volume that we've increased in seven years. And so, um, so th that's what the Almond Board of California has done a really good job is developing new markets, whether it's in uh, Brazil or India or China or any of the European markets. And they've gone out and they've helped market that program so that we could sell that 3 billion pound crop when we got to it a couple of years ago. 
And so there's other regions. Australia is, is another region that grows almond. Spain grows a little bit, but it's uh, very different um, than what we grow here. Um, with our climate here, this, it's, it's, it's good for almonds because we can't have a lot of moisture um, because then we get a lot of diseases that happen um, during the bloom or during, during um, the fall. So we have to really be careful about, you know, you know, we love the water here, but we, we like it to snow in the, and rain in the mountains and then bring the water down so we can irrigate as we need it. And, and that's what this Mediterranean climate does here in California for us. That's awesome. So, Brett, what about the uses of almonds? Could you speak to, you know, what are some of the final products? You mentioned a lot might maybe exported, but then also maybe a percentage of the volume and, and what percentage is used for different final sources. Yeah, I mean, almonds is, um, you know, there's so many uses. If you just go into a grocery store and you walk around the grocery store because that's where you're, all your high profit margins in and the dairy and the produce and the meat. And you see almonds in the, in the dairy section, you see them in the produce section, you see them as a snack. You go, in, you go down through the middle of the grocery store and you have your, your almonds that are in cereals. And so almonds has just been a great item that is so many different uses. And so, you know, now you see some of the new things that are coming out is almond flour that, you know, you can bake pizzas with. You'll have uh, almond butter now is becoming one of a, a, a new high trendy item. And so it's just because of the health, because it's a plant-based protein, it's become very popular, you know, in bars and, and different ingredients. A lot of ingredients that almonds are coming in, whether it's a paste or a butter or a flour or oil and roasted and, you know, covered in chocolate. So there's so many different uses that almonds is playing in the market that that's why it's grown so much over the last few years as well. Is there an item or a, or a use that people would be kind of surprised? Oh, I didn't know that had almonds in it. Is there something like that that would surprise people? Yeah, I think um, like a lot of the, the bars that you get, you know, on the, on the bottom of it might be a, a almond butter when you don't even really kind of realize it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of just different ingredients that almonds are going into, um, whether it's a snack item or just eating them raw. But it's become very trendy. I know a lot of the chefs and stuff like that are using different almond ingredients, you know, whether it's um, using almond milk, you can go get your latte at Starbucks and ask for almond milk and, and um, you can do that. So, but yeah, there's just a ton of different uses of almonds. And, and that's something that's really exciting about the industry because we can be in so many different sections of the grocery store and have a presence there. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's move back to production a little bit. And you had referenced some of the, the production differences or the comparison between mm-hmm. some other crops. With a crop of that size and, and you plant trees and you're kind of in it for the long term when you plant some trees, I assume, how long how long is a tree in production or orchard or you call them orchards or groves? Yeah, orchards. Okay. Yeah, almond orchard. And so an almond orchard start producing... Uh, a crop year three, it's uh, typically a pretty light crop. Um, And then they'll go anywhere from, you know, 20, 25 years. Uh, They start to peter out, you know, in the the 20s. And so you have to kind of like look at your financials and and decide, you know, okay, is is this worth, you know, continue to grow or are we going to start doing a lot less inputs and, and just try and 
limp along here on an old, older orchard. Um, or like a market is today, you might be taking out an orchard at 18, 19 years. That starts really petering out and, and look to put in something newer. And so there's a lot of different varieties of almonds. I mean, I don't know how many we have, but some like 20, 20, 25 different varieties wow. of almonds, really? which kind of helps us as a grower, you know, get through those acres during harvest. Cause you have a non-parel Monterey that, um, you know, you'll harvest a non-parel one time and then you'll come back later in the season, sometimes four or five weeks later, and then the Monterey's ready. Mm. And so, um, and there's a lot of new varieties out there that are self-pollinating that don't need the bees. Bees are, you know, a huge input that we use an almond, you know, during bloom because they need to go there and, and pollinate those flowers. So there's a couple of varieties out there that we're playing with that, that don't need, I wouldn't say as much bees. They still need some bees because if you don't put bees in that section of the self-pollinating, then basically you're going to steal the bees from your other ranch might not get them. So you still need some bees out there, even though they're supposed to be self-fertile. But um, those are, are good because there's a one, one harvest through that orchard versus, you know, we'll go in, harvest the non-parels, and then you got to sweep them, and then you got to condition them, and then you got to then pick them up. So you got a lot of equipment running through the ranch. Um, and so these, you know, self-pollinating or one-shake one harvest varieties are really appealing to a farm like us so that we can get through and and hopefully get those all picked up in early October October before we get some fall rains. I'd like to explore the bees a little bit more but there's a couple other things I'd like to follow up on so you you mentioned how the life of an orchard is about 20 years give or take when you take a orchard out of production is there a crop rotation that you do do you plant that directly back into almonds or is there something else in between for a few years? We do. We, we like to uh, rotate it out and, you know, just kind of give that soil a little bit of a break and bring in some other nutrients from different crops that we can grow. And because we do grow, you know, five or six different crops that we can rotate those things in. And we think that's good for our soil. A lot of growers, they don't. They've gone to 100% almonds. And, you know, when they replant, they might just change where that tree was and put it in a different different uh, area of the ranch because you know some people you know do a diamond shape in their planting others do straight and so you can move those rows a little bit and maybe you don't have those roots right where the where the tree was last time are there disease considerations where you know maybe some kind of soil-borne disease that infects the roots where you need to move i mean does moving it to just 10 feet away or whatever that would be where the tree wasn't directly help with that or is it better to, you know, like you mentioned, you do rotation? Yeah, I think it, I think it helps from a biological standpoint, you know, where, you know, where that, where those trees and those roots were, if you, if you put it offset of that, then, you know, that soil hasn't had, you know, pretty much the main part of the root system and, and the tree. And so I think it just kind of helps from that aspect that you just don't want to plant it. If you're going to go right back into it, you just don't want to plant it right in that same spot, you know let's go grab some nutrients from the soil that it hasn't really been taken up from. And mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of the, the, the theory behind that. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, so Brad, I'm kind of curious, you mentioned a few of the challenges. What other challenges do you face when it comes to almond production from like a, are there supply chain or agronomic challenges, things like yeah, that? Yeah. Um, 
yeah, right now, uh, the almond industry is really facing some tough challenges in, in the supply chain um, and, and really in, in the shipping. It's the shipping aspect. You know, we have a lot of the almonds that are shipped overseas. And so right now with the ports out of California, the way they are getting so backed up and, and um, it's, it's hard to get those ships in and then reloaded and go back out, go back out to the east. And so right now you have a lot of these um, these containers and these shippers that want to just bring stuff in from the east and bring it into California. And then they'll are actually deadheading back to the east to grab another load instead of bringing something back there because it could take, you know, three weeks for them to sit there and get loaded here in California. Cause I hear Long Beach has got like 65 ships just sitting out in the ocean trying to get unloaded. And so it's been a, it's a really big problem. I was up um, at a seminar yesterday with the almond board and we were talking to a holer up there and he said, they came up and said, okay, you can get 70 containers on this ship. And you have Monday to Wednesday to get them to the port and get them loaded. Then they came back in the middle of the week and said, no, you have till Monday. You have Monday to bring them in and get them loaded. And it's like he's asking, you know, how do you get 70 trucks to load on one day? And even though he's probably only a couple hours away, that's near impossible. So it's like, you know, we have some big challenge ahead of us. and, and, And unfortunately, it just doesn't look good for the next year or so we have to figure out these ports because now everything is just getting backed up the whole pipeline of the customers are getting backed up and so the biggest issue we're going to see this year is that you know are these pullers and handlers going to have the space to even bring in the crop you know we might have the crop on the ground and ask our holder hey are you gonna you guys gonna pick up these trailers and the handler is going to tell them like hey we have no more room we can't take it and so it's going to be a, a really big supply chain issue because, you know, we're talking about having a billion pounds carryover uh, off of three billion crops. So we got a third of our, our crop that has not even been sold. And I think our bigger issue is that we're going to have probably maybe even a half a billion pounds that is committed, but not shipped. And so now you're talking about maybe a billion and a half pounds that's going to be uh, sitting in a, in these handlers warehouse somewhere that we need to fill up the pipeline. And right now you just can't get them on a ship to send them. I assume it's also not like a grain farmer where they maybe have some on-farm storage, some bins to, to store their grain. in. is there anything like that in the almond world or does it have to go to a producer? Well, they can. Uh, so we, what we call the holders have what's called a stockpile yard. And so when they, when they're, when their process is full and they're, and they can't, take any more almonds into them they go put them on the in the yard and then they cover them and they fume fumigate them and so but the problem is is their stockyards could be full you know middle of the season halfway or done the season and their stockyards are full so what's going to happen when they can't they can't run anymore because actually there's no more bins now left you know because all the bins are getting used up and stored in the handler's uh warehouse well there's no bins to put them in and so it's just um, we just see some really issues coming on this this uh, this harvest season that we're going to have a lot of challenges, um, not just challenges with growing and, and, and dealing with the water issues that we have in California. And now we're going to have to deal with, you know, hey, as a grower, we think, OK, great, we've we've harvested. Hey, it's time to time to relax and take a breath. And then now we're going to be like, man, are we even going to get 
our stuff into the holder and get to the handler so we can get paid. Well, and even as you mentioned, when the, when the supply, you know, if the shipping issue kind of gets normalized a little bit, it's going to be a long time until that backlog is really cleaned up. Yeah, it's um, filling up that pipeline that is is going to take some time. So even if they got it fixed yesterday, it's still going to be a problem. Um, we're hearing it's going to be sometime in hopefully the first quarter of 2023 before they can get some of the port issues fixed. But by that time, you know, we already have a lot of that crop that is in the handler's possession and they're running and, and need to be shipping the 2023 crop. And they're going to be still stuck on the 2022 crop. Brett, let's go back to the bees just a little bit. Preston and I both like to talk about bees. We're both very uh, small scale hobby beekeepers. And so, you know, it's always interesting the the pollination market. And that's a big thing. I mean, how many bees come into California to pollinate the almonds? Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a bit. Uh, you know, we probably have about a million acres of producing almonds and every acre is going to take, you know, close to about two hives an acre is what the almonds need. And so um, it's a lot of bees on the ranch and they have a lot of work. I mean, those beekeepers, I don't envy them. That's a lot of work that they have to do because unfortunately, you know, the almond honey is not a desirable honey. And so they Mm -hmm. need to come and they got to scrape all that off. And, and, um, and, you know, so those bees have place to continue to, to, to process their pollen. But, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of work for those bee guys. Uh, they've had a tough go. I know with mites and stuff in the bees has been a a big issue with them. And then, you know, finding other places to take them, you know, so that when they come into the, the bloom season in February, that they're strong, you know, that's one of the things that's good for the bees is that, you know, they love the almond pollen. And so, you know, they might come in at a, a four, four hive or, you know, and then end up at an eight or 10 frames. Mm-hmm. So they really produce a lot and they get really strong during the almond season. But we as, as growers need to also have something because we want those bees out there first bloom or, you know, before that. So a lot of times we've been practicing around is, is, is planting some cover crops, you know, that's going to be good for the bees when they, when they first get set out. So that they can, you know, build up a little bit of strength when, you know, that almond bloom is in full force. Because like this year, I remember I was I was gone for a weekend and I left on a Friday and I came back on a um, on a Monday and we were like no flowers at all when I left and I came back Monday and went holy Toledo, we're almost in full bloom in some of these varieties that we have. And so you know those bees really got to work to pollinate those flowers because there's a lot of flowers on a tree and, and, you know, every flower that they pollinate is an opportunity to have a nut, <clears throat> even though that tree is going to, you know, take, you know, anywhere from 40, 50% of those flowers are going to end up turning into a nut. But, you know, those bees got a lot of work to do in a short time period. How long are they there in the orchards? <clears throat> They're about a month or so that we, we probably put them in, you know, early February and, you know, already by now they're already gone. So maybe like six weeks, but Mm -hmm. they probably have more about a a four week of during that bloom. And then just depending on varieties, you know, you have some varieties that, that bloom later and go longer. And so like our Butte Padres, they were, they were in full bloom, you know, 
oh, probably like eight, 10 days ago. And um, where our other varieties were, were completely done. Does that present logistical challenges having the bees there? Because I assume there's other things that you have to worry about attacking insects, fungus, things like that. You probably have to use some crop protection products. And how do you manage that around the bees without hurting the bees? Yeah. So, um, you know, if you, if you have to spray any fungicides or anything like that during uh, the bloom, then you're going to, you have to spray at night. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of, um, you know, we have to contact a lot of the bee growers that are within a, you know, a certain radius of um, the orchard where we're going to spray. And then um, we have to do everything at night. And, you know, even though you could, you could spray during the day, like we do a nutritional spray during bloom to help for set and the, and the pollination. And we could spray that during the day. But then again, if you're spraying those bees, even with something that's not going to hurt them, you're going to, you're going to get their wings wet and they're not going to do the job that they need to do. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a good practice to even spray at night, even when you don't have to, and the, and the material doesn't call for it, but still water on, on the bees wings are going to slow them down. We kind of talked a little bit about the challenges. I'm curious about the other end of the spectrum. Are there, you mentioned, you know, a lot of people present technology to you. Is there, you know, things that excite you about the future of ag specifically regarding almond production, new varieties of trees, new technology that'll help your efficiencies, things like that, that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I think what excites me about it is, is just the new tools that we're going to have and, and, you know, this whole regenerative ag is something um, that's been, you know, a pretty good buzzword in the last year or so, or even longer than that. And that's something that we're looking into. And, you know, what can we do to, um, you know, because, you know, those trees are on there for 20, 25 years. And so what can we do to keep, keep that soil going and keep it, you know, strong. And so looking at different biologicals that are going to help, you know, with the nitrogen, um, cause you know, as you guys know, this nitrogen cost is like through the roof and, you know, some of these organic fertilizers, you know, seem way out of touch. And now it's like, Hmm, maybe we ought to try some of these organic fertilizers just because of the cost point. And now just doing more research on that. It's like, man, that could really be beneficial, you know, to the almond orchard. You know, like, can I get something that's going to help the biological aspect in the soil to produce and fix nitrogen where I'm not having to add synthetic nitrogen and, you know, where I'm suppressing some of those microorganisms that we have in the soil. And so that's something that I've been really looking into the last little while now. And I'm excited about that to see, you know, what we can do. And so, um, you know, we, we have an account that's going to be using some organic uh, almonds as, as an ingredient. And so we're really starting to push like, okay, Hey, should we go ahead and start moving some, some of these orchards into organics and just seeing some of the things that they're doing on the regenerative ag side has got me really excited um, about what we can do and hopefully do it and do it cheaper than what we're doing conventionally and not putting so many inputs in there, not spending so many tractors driving up and down the orchard and, and doing some of the mowing and, and some of the spraying and stuff like that. So what can we do to help suppress weeds and what can we do to help suppress the pests that are in the orchard by, you know, growing cover crops down the middle of the rows and, and, and utilizing some of the regenerative ag processes that's going to help our orchard. So that's something I'm, I'm really excited about testing and, and seeing what we can do. 
You've mentioned cover crops a couple of times. Is there a cover crop that you can plant in the orchard that even helps with the nutrition, the, the soil, you know, legumes or whatever it might be? Yeah, there's, um, you know, we usually do like a, a pretty good mix of a bunch of different stuff, whether it's turnips and mustards and, you know, mustards are great to, to control the gophers. And so we have a ranch that's, you know, just, um, you know, there's so many gophers out there. So we're really trying to look, hey, you know, we've, we've tried trapping and we tried baiting and we've done all this huh. and they continue to come back. So it's like, you know, I was like talking the other day, I was like, well, why don't we plant some cover crops over there and why don't we put some mustard in there and see if we can control those gophers that way and then you're getting a double benefit because then you're getting some organic material into the orchard and you're going to help hopefully uh, help hold that moisture as well as penetrate and get that moisture down deeper during the season so those are some of the things that we're looking at you know trying on the ranch to see if we can implement that to you know get two for one really get some nitrogen get some uh, gopher control and you know help get some organic material back into that soil. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and it is interesting how you talk about everything kind of being interconnected and, you know, you can get some benefits from the mustard with the gopher repellent, hopefully, and some other benefits. And I think farming is really moving that way in general and probably faster adopted in areas outside of corn and soybean country where, you know, you have massive acreage of the same crop. How about data? Is that a change that's coming on in, in the almond world? Or, you know, and, and that's probably one big thing. And when we talk about corn and soybeans is all the data that's collected and generated and used to make decisions. And even on the acre or smaller basis, are, are you using that kind of data? Are you seeing a trend towards precision ag and tree nut production? Yeah, I mean, we're getting a lot of data from, you know, our different trials and stuff that's going on in the industry. One of the things that I really have utilized is like soil moisture probes and just being able to have that data real time that I can look up on my phone helps me decide, you know, hey, how long am I going to run water? How much does it really need? And especially when you're putting on these expensive fertilizers, you can see how that water is moving through that profile and I can make decisions on you know, hey, turn that off after four hours when I'm applying fertilizers or, you know what, this ranch needs to be eight hours during this time period. And so that's kind of the, the, the information I get from the technology that I think has been really helpful for me, you know, to become a better farmer, just to be able to look at that data on my phone and know, okay, at the end of the year, I know exactly how many acre foot I put on that ranch. And it just helps me decide like, okay, I can use a lot less water in the spring and in the fall you know, because I know exactly how that water is moving through the ranch. And then over time, you kind of really get an idea of this ranch is going to do this and that ranch is going to do that. And being able to have some of that information, you know, right there on your phone is um, very valuable. For sure. Well, Brett, it's been uh, great to talk with you about your farm. Just the fact that, you know, it's been in the family for a century is, is a pretty cool fact. And I'm sure you're, you know, building your legacy going into the future as well. Is there anywhere our listeners can go to learn more about you and your operation, like a social media website, things like that. Yeah, we do. We, um, we do have a, a presence in social media. We have sillproperties.com as our website, and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Sill Properties. And, and we've done a lot of cool things. Um, you know, we've, we've gone out and, and uh, I have a friend that helps me with my social media with a nonprofit that I run. And so I brought her into our our farming operation said, Hey, let's start doing some stuff. Let's start telling our story and the farming operation and let people know that, 
you know, hey, you know, Melton just doesn't come from a carton and eggs are just don't magically appear on the shelf. And, and the same thing with produce um, or same thing with farming and almonds and the different things that we do. And, and so we've, we've had them out there and do some drone shots during harvest of garlic and carrots and just showing different aspects of what we do on the farm. And it's pretty cool to see, you know, I got a cousin who's like, oh man, that's really cool. I like to see the story that you guys are telling. And, and you know, she doesn't really know much about farming, but she, you know, follows us on Instagram and we're always posting pictures and little videos and stuff like that, just to tell our story, because I think that's something that, you know, as farmers have not done a good job of telling our story and where our food comes from. And I think people need to know, they need to know, you know, what it takes to put that almond on, on a shelf and what it takes to put milk in a carton. And, and it's not just magically, it just doesn't magically appear in the produce section. It's goes a lot of work and, you know, we need to tell that story so people know exactly what we're doing. And people are really interested in hearing that story too. I think it's, you know, you see, see more of this where farmers are trying to share the story, just like you mentioned. And I think there is a lot of appetite for hearing those stories. So it's great work that you're doing. Yeah, it is. Um, we, uh, we invested in some fully autonomous um, spray rigs and we've got some great videos that we post on there. And, and you know, it's just great to see like, hey, we're, we're, we're trying to do something that helps us become more sustainable and, and, you know, something that, you know, can use a lot less material and be more accurate with the sprays and turn things off on, you know, this side of the, the orchard when it's going down or when it's making its turns and, and just a lot more efficient and stuff like that. And so, you know, some of those things that we do, I think people are interested in and, and you know, we're trying to be more sustainable and, and, you know, we want to make sure that this land that we're farming on can be farmed for the next generation to come. Well, Brett, we'll definitely provide some of those links in the show notes and thanks again for your time today. Yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate it. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.